Micah chapter 4. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Judah. He will teach us his ways, so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between peoples, and he will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Everyone will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid. For the Lord Almighty has spoken. All the, all the nations may walk in the name of their gods, but we will walk in the name of the Lord, our God, forever and ever. In that day, declares the Lord, I will gather the lame, I will assemble the exiles, and those I have brought to grief. I will make the lame my remnant, those driven away a strong nation. The Lord will rule over them in Mount Zion from that day and forever. As for you, watchtower of the flock, stronghold of daughter Zion, the former dominion will be restored to you. Kingship will come to the daughter of Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Thank you, Janet. Let me just get my stand. I'm operating from two stands today. <laughs> One with my music on. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for um, all that you have done for us in Christ. And as we uh, watched that video, we were reminded that through Jesus, we find forgiveness and we find peace. And I pray that each one of us will know that today. And as we remember and as we look at these words from Scripture, help us to hear your voice in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, um, interestingly, I was chatting with Janet before the service, and um, she said to me, aren't those words from Isaiah? And some of you, um, if you know Isaiah, you might recognize a few of those uh, words that are found in Isaiah 2 as well. I don't know which came first, um, but maybe they inspired one another, who knows? But they were possibly uh, around at a similar time. They were certainly around in a similar place. They were both writing in Jerusalem um, and Judah. 
Um, and so they're beautiful words, aren't they? Just listening to those. And I was really inspired by them as I, I read them as I was thinking about uh, Remembrance Sunday. So let's think, first of all, a little bit about the context of uh, this passage from Micah 4. If we look at the previous verses in uh, chapter 3, verses 9 to 12, we discover that uh, God is sending through Micah a judgment, a condemnation on Jerusalem, and it looks like all is lost. This is the last of those verses. Therefore, because of you, Zion will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble, the temple hill, a mound overgrown with thickets. That's interesting, isn't it? That's the verse before the ones we just read. Maybe the um, mound looked a little bit like this. Um, here's a picture of an overgrown garden. I'm sure it looked nothing like that, but that sense of something being overgrown like that. Maybe you can picture what a mound of rubble looks like and the, um, the thickets all over it. Looks like all is lost. Look like it's just not worth saving anymore. But then, the beginning of our reading, chapter 4, verse 1, is a very different image. Not just a hill, actually. It's an image of a mountain. So in that end of chapter 3, we hear a hill. Here in chapter 4, we hear a mountain. These are the words of the first verse. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and peoples will stream to it. I love that picture. I love that image. Let me just remind us of what, he, what Micah means by in the last days. You may have heard the phrase, the now and the not yet. And we know, of course, that Jesus has ushered in those last days. One way I've heard people talk about it is it's a little bit like being between VD Day and VJ Day. VE Day, I don't know why I said VD. Victory in Europe and victory in Japan. Um, that sense of um, the victory has been won, but it's, we're not quite there yet. That's the picture of being in this now and not yet in the last days, as Micah describes it. And so what we have here are prophetic words about a future where everything will be reversed. And God's promise is that peace will come. That's the overarching thing in this uh, passage, in these verses. If we look at verses 1 to 4 of our passage, which is where I'm going to mostly focus this morning, there's a sense that there isn't much that can be improved on, on those words. It is, to use a long word, eschatological um, it's about the end times. Don't worry if you don't know what eschatological means. It's not the end of the world. <laughs> I'm really sorry. My dad used to say that all the time, and I just could not uh, take it up at that moment. <laughs> but I, I have to say, it helps me remember what eschatological means, so that's good. <laughs> this is a glimpse, isn't it? It's a glimpse of the day when the kingdom of God becomes a complete reality. This is a picture of global shalom. Shalom, of course, meaning peace, but it also, if you've done the well-being journey, you know that it also means well-being. Shalom. So what will that look like? Well, if we look at that first verse, it's all about that mountain. The hill that had been made rubble, that had been overgrown, will be like the highest of mountains. 
Now, very recently, I was very fortunate to uh, go to Nepal. And um, I was really excited about seeing um, the Himalayas. I was particularly excited <coughs> about seeing Everest. And as you can see, um, we went to somewhere to um, view Everest. And that is the picture that I took of the view that we saw. I was told <laughs> that Everest was behind those clouds. Um, but I have to say, we were there for two weeks um, in different parts of um, Nepal, and at no point did I see Everest. We saw little glimpses of mountains, we saw some in various places, and on our final day, we saw a little tiny bit from the roof of the house that we'd been staying in. It did clear up, um, but there were still no mountains, really, on that day when we went there. Thing is, we knew they were there. We knew those mountains were there, but we never fully saw them. Then, a couple of days after we left, the person we were staying with sent me this picture from their rooftop, <laughs> pointing out where Everest was, pointing out where all the other mountains were. I wasn't annoyed at all, I'm sure you can imagine. <clears throat> But here, of course, the image of a mountain is also about the mountain of our Lord's temple. That's what we hear in this place, in this passage. And it's higher than any other, which is why I thought Everest was a good thing to mention. And it's a reminder, of course, isn't it, that our God is greater than any other. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And we need to hold on to that, don't we, at times? We need to hold on to the fact that our God is greater than any other. This passage reminds us that this mountain will be exalted over the hills. It's like everything else is a hill, not a mountain. When we first arrived in Kathmandu, uh, me and my friend were looking around at these amazing views, and he said, wow, look at those mountains. And the people we were staying with said, those aren't mountains. <laughs> yes, they're higher than anything in Europe, but the mountains are behind those clouds. Wait till you see, they said, wait till you see the mountains. And here's a picture of Everest that I didn't get to see, and I probably would never have got that close. Um, but this mountain, the mountain of our Lord, the mountain of the temple of God, is higher than any other. It's better than any other. It's greater than any other. And then we read in this verse, Micah says, and peoples will stream to it. That is a picture of the nations coming to God's mountain. Isn't that a wonderful image? Nations streaming to the Lord. Now, occasionally we do see glimpses of that, don't we? We see that happening. But boy, do we need to pray for it to happen more. And especially, I have to say, in our own nation. Wouldn't it be wonderful if our nation would stream to the Lord's mountain, to the Lord's temple? But why? Well, I want to focus um, on peace on this uh, Remembrance Sunday and look at what we can see about peace in these verses. And I want to think three ways over the next, through the next three verses in this passage. So we're going to look at verse 2 and the way of peace. So we can have uh, verse 2 up. Thank you. Let's just read this. Many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. 
So we read there that the nations will stream to the mountains of the Lord, to his temple, and they will do that to learn, to be taught his ways, to hear his word. In this image of a, che- of a temple in the last days, the temple is the, the perfect place to come and learn of God. And it's, of course, a faithful reflection of who he is as well. This verse describes many nations coming. What a picture of nations seeing that God is the highest and the greatest, the one from whom they can learn. We also see in this verse that the word of the Lord will go out from Jerusalem, not just to one nation, but to many. And that reminds me of those words that Jesus gives the apostles in the start of Acts, that they would go out as his witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the end of the earth. And a reminder, we are in this now and not yet. We are in these last days. This is happening We only see glimpses, but it is happening. But of course, when we think about the Lord's temple, if we look in the New Testament, we think, but the the temple of Jerusalem is no longer there. It was destroyed. So what is the temple? Well, of course, we are his temple. 1 Corinthians 3.16. Interesting, actually, if you uh, look at the 3.16s in the Bible, there's some beautiful verses there. That verse says, you yourselves are God's temple. We are God's temple. In the last days and now in the not yet, his people are being established as his temple. Now, we're not the perfect reflection of this yet. We're a work in progress. But if we are this temple, then we are the ones who will teach so that others may walk his ways. We're the ones who are sharing his words to the ends of the earth. We've heard this many times. I'm sure there is no plan B. We are it. We are the way many people will hear about Jesus. We are the way people will see him at work. We're the way people will learn his ways. So how we act, what we say, how we relate to one another has a massive impact Throughout this passage, there is a a sense of peace in all of it. We see that most clearly in verse 3, and we'll come to that in a moment. But it's there through all of it. Because there's no sense of angst. There's no sense of unhappiness. Just a place where people stream for more. This is a picture of God's temple being the place you come to learn God's ways. And maybe particularly when we think about peace, it's a place... You come to learn the art of peacemaking. So that means there's a challenge for all of us in that, isn't there? To live in ways which show God's ways of peacemaking. And we see God's way of peacemaking in Ephesians 2. In verse 14 of chapter 2, Jesus is described as our peace. The one who breaks down the walls of hostility. The one um, that those walls that we build between each other and between nations and individuals. But of course, it was at the cross that Jesus stretched out his arms to make peace between us and God and between us and one another. So, how do we, how do you contribute to this peace? Let's face it, when we look at the church nationally and globally, on social media, in other places, 
we don't necessarily see peace, do we? We see some nasty stuff being said. Think about how easy it is to quickly throw out a negative email which is hurtful and void of anything positive. Just look at the book of James to see how we need to be aware of our words and what our tongues do, which I'm sure now would include our fingers as well in social media and so on. So how do we contribute to this in our own relationships, in our relationships with one another, in relationship with one another in our church, in our small groups and so on? Wouldn't it be great if what the world saw of God's people wasn't bickering, but a community of people who have learnt the God-given art of peacemaking? Wouldn't that be wonderful? Let's pray that that will be a reality. So then we move on to verse 3, which says, this is on the screen, He will judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations will not take up sword against nations, nor will they train for war anymore. Wow, isn't that a beautiful image? As I said, we'll find similar words in Isaiah 2. In the last days, this passage says, disputes will be settled between nations. But let's not lose sight of how. This passage reminds us that it is God who will settle these disputes. So much so that they won't even train for war anymore. Wouldn't that be good? No need to train for war because there's no chance of it happening. In the week where we have seen a little glimpse of an end of fighting in one part of Ukraine... Yet we know there are wars waging in many places. That is good news. And on this Remembrance Day, as we remember those who have given their lives in wars over many years, we long for war to be a thing of the past. And here, we have a hope of a promise that one day that will be the case. There will be a day when there will be complete peace, no more war. And all of that will be down to nations being in a right relationship with God. So how might we play a part in that? It might feel pointless at times, but praying for peace is powerful. So let's keep doing it. Praying for God's people to be in places of power to make a difference. That is a good thing to pray. My favorite part of this verse is uh, the image of swords being made into uh, plowshares. They've been made redundant, and they've been shaped into something used instead for agriculture. Spears into pruning hooks and so on. It's a really vivid image, isn't it, of peacemaking. Interestingly, some people have taken this prophecy really literally. And there's probably no better example of this, uh, of the church helping solve injustices, than the church, uh, Christian church is led by an Anglican priest called Dinis Sengulan. I'm not sure if I pronounced that correctly, but go with me. Um, Mozambique um, was decolonized, and a civil war broke out that lasted between 1977 and 1992. That's 15 years. Over a million people were abused and murdered in horrific ways. This priest led a church delegation that helped uh, broker peace between the rebels and the president. And he and another Christian group helped uh, lay the foundation for a peace treaty in 1992. 
Sangilan and the church didn't stop there, though, because um, there were still more than 7 million guns hidden all over Mozambique. And so they worked with the government to help start the Tools for Arms, or Swords into Plowshares project, inspired by this verse. So if you turned in a weapon, you would get a tool in return. Turn your gun in, you'd get a shovel and so on. And the more weapons you turned in, the more tools you could get. So one village turned in so many weapons, they got a tractor. How cool is that? As part of this initiative, they helped launch an art project where they, they took these old weapons used for war and bloodshed and they turned them into beautiful pieces of art designed for peace. Here's just one example. Um, it's the one on the left that's the... Oh, I don't know why I said that, but anyway. Um, and this piece is called, unsurprisingly, the saxophone. And it's made from an AK-47 and a bazooka. It's a weapon. Those were weapons, of course, used for war. And now, well, they're a symbol of music and harmony. Over 600,000 weapons were turned in as part of that program. And it was Christians and the church who led this movement. I realize that there's a local example of that as well, and here's a picture of the knife angel, and that's it actually outside Coventry. And the knife angel is another piece of art made from weapons that reminds people of what can happen. But of course, a reminder, we don't need a civil war to be leaders of justice and peace in our community. What could you do? How could you be a Christian presence? Visiting Nepal, um, where it's um, many, only very few decades since there were no Christians in Nepal. There are now quite a few. And I met one of them. Here's a picture of her. Uh, this is a lady who, her and her husband sell paintings um, at the top of a temple mound um, in Kathmandu. And they're Christians. And a lot of their paintings have Bible verses on them. And they are selling pictures with Bible verses on in a place that is basically Hindu and Buddhist. And they are there peacefully living as Christians. I actually bought the painting that she's holding there, so that's now in my house. Isn't that a wonderful story, though, of how um, a Christian can be, show peace and just be there? They've had a lot of flack, but I loved seeing her and meeting her. Peace, of course, is not just um, about an absence of fighting, is it? Of course. It's so much more than that. And finally, in verse 4, we see something of that. Because peace is an absence of fear. This verse says, Everyone will sit under their own vine, and under their own vine, uh, under their own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid, for the Lord Almighty has spoken. That picture of everyone sitting underneath their own vine and fig tree isn't a picture of individualism, of course. It's a picture of contentment. There's no need to look at anyone else's crops because they are wholly and utterly content with what they have. It's like the visual depiction of Paul's words in Philippians 4. I have learnt the secret of being content in any and every situation. Here there's an absence, of course, of fear, because God has spoken. That peace, that shalom, which passes all understanding, again, Philippians 4, is so completely there. That peace and shalom are in the air they breathe, there's no fear. Wouldn't that be great? Now, of course, we know that this is a picture of what is to come, but we can glimpse it now as well. 
because we have a hope of eternity that means we really don't need to fear. Now, I know it's really not that easy, and everything going on around us makes it harder, but we can have this peace now through the Holy Spirit. Peace is a fruit of the Spirit. And the more we know Jesus, the more we can experience his peace. His peace, which the world as it is cannot understand. Lots of us, I know, are worried, we're frightened about the state of this world, what is going on in our own nation and in others, but the Bible gives us hope through this passage. In these verses, we see a glimpse into God's future plans that we will see glimpses of now, but they give us hope of what is to come. Last week, we heard those words from Jesus in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Later in that chapter, Jesus says these words, All this I have spoken while still with you. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Let's hold on to that promise. So much more I could say, but I need to stop. But there is that beautiful image right at the end of the lame and the exiles, those who were hurt being brought to God's holy mountain forever. Read them, pray about them, and why not think about how you can take a part and pray? I'm going to finish by reading a poem, but can I encourage you to stand with me? We've been sitting for a while. I'm going to read this poem really as a prayer. Um, But I will read it and then I will pray. So if I can ask the musicians uh, to join me, that would be great. This is a poem written by Angela Bryan and Sam Hargreaves. In the last days, they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. So in these days, we will turn around the camera of our self-centered selfies to take a long, loving look at the face of Christ in others. So, in these days, we will upturn the podium of our calculated competitiveness and elevate the least among us. So, in these days, we will dismantle the walls of our fear, which keep at arm's length the refugees, the foreigners, the homeless, and build them homes with those same bricks and these same arms. So, in these days, we will co-opt the cliques of our comfortable companionship and countercultural welcome and outrageous hospitality. In the last days, they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. In these days, we will live in this broken world with redemptive purpose until the last days come. So, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the peace that we can find in you, a peace which is beyond understanding. We thank you for the promise of peace in eternity. And we thank you for the glimpses that we see now. But we say, come, Lord Jesus. We say, work in our hearts, in our minds, in our nation, and across this world. We pray for that day 
that many will stream to you and that we will have played our part. In Jesus' name, amen.